Our past can be our greatest asset if we are willing to ask for help and do the work to find out what happened. My name is Andrea, and this is Adult Child. Welcome back to Adult Child, where we take a deep dive into the impact of growing up in a dysfunctional family. For any new listeners, I am Andrea. I am a piece of work. I am your resident shit show as well. And this podcast is where we embrace the shit show, where we embrace being shit shows, where we embrace our stories, especially the not so wonderful parts of our past. And that is exactly what we are doing today. Y'all, we are diving deep into step four, made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. So this is the real meat and potatoes of the 12 steps, in my opinion. Um, It's like the rite of passage of the 12 steps, regardless of what fellowship you're working it in. But today we obviously are going to be looking at it from the adult child angle. And this step is where we are looking at all that shit that we have avoided looking at, talking about, thinking about, feeling about, our abandonment, our shame, denial, resentment, trauma, all that fun stuff. Because it is through processing that shit that is the key to our freedom and our happiness and the key to becoming our truest and best selves. Yesterday on Instagram, I posted this quote from Melody Beatty. It's applicable to our conversation here. Let me pull it up. For so many years, we thought other people held the key to our happiness. Then we found out we held the key to the prison where we'd been held captive. We might have started out as legitimate victims of others, but then we became victims of ourselves. And step four is is part of that key, y'all. It is part of the key to unlock ourselves from um, the prison of our faulty childhood programming. And whether or not we work the 12 steps or we work a four-step, the exercises that we're going to be talking about today, the various areas that are addressed and looked at, in a four-step are crucial and key for every single adult child to address. So this is a beneficial topic for anybody, even if you are not in the 12-step program or you have any interest in being in a 12-step program. uh, This shit is applicable to you. I just also want to reiterate that I am not a doctor, I'm not a therapist, and I do not speak on behalf of the ACA program, I am just a shit show with a podcast. So take what you want and leave the rest. And today, y'all are just getting me. Well, actually, that's not true. Uh, It's mostly me, but you are going to get to hear um, a portion of a Patreon group from this past weekend where we talked about abandonment and shame, which are kind of the two biggies that we're looking at in this four steps. So you guys will get a little window into what our Patreon groups are like. But other than that, you're just getting me. And I wanna I wanna talk about my my limiting beliefs around doing solo episodes. I hear from y'all that you like when I do the solo episodes. Here are my limiting beliefs, my faulty beliefs around doing solo episodes. I think, why would you guys want to listen to me the whole time? I know that's ridiculous. I also think that I have to come up with some new juicy stories that I've never told you before, which let's be honest, I've essentially told you all of my juicy stories. Um, And any new good future content will truly come from dating. And you guys, it is slim fucking pickings here in San Francisco. So, but I feel like I really need to move so I can move somewhere where I can do some more dating so that I can provide y'all uh with some some fresh content. 
But I know that those beliefs, those fears are bullshit. And I am just putting it out there, right? Because that's what we do. We bring this shit to the light so that we can see that it is not reality, that it is not truth. So before we get into the step work, I have one exciting announcement. So you guys, I'm starting a second episode during the week. It's going to be on Saturdays and it will be called Shit Show Saturdays. And it will be where I am talking to y'all shit shows. Each episode will be me speaking with a listener of the pod. There'll be shorter episodes, probably 30 minutes or so, where y'all get to share your shit show with us all. As I said in the intro, you know, this is about embracing the shit show sharing our shit show, embracing the shit show. And I know that it's really beneficial to hear the stories of others um, in order to identify and relate. So I will be starting those probably not, it's probably going to be on, um, I'm thinking April 30th will be the first shit show Saturday that we do. Uh, So stay tuned for that. And then also a reminder that on May 1st, We are having our first ever adult child virtual workshop. It's going to be called Leaving Crazy Town, focused on codependency, thoughts and feelings, and tools to deal with them. It's going to be with me and Sarah Mishu, who was on the podcast, I guess, two weeks ago. As of now, there's only two spots left for non-Patreon members, so by the time you're hearing this, they might already be gone they're all gone and you want to join the Patreon, you can still join the workshop and pay a discounted price. I also just want to let you know that there's an option to uh, purchase the replay of the of the workshop. So that's 15 bucks. Go check out in the show notes for links to all that. You can also find links to the Patreon. That's where I host weekly support groups. That's where you say thanks, Andrea. Uh, other ways that you can support me is you can follow me on Instagram and TikTok at Adult Child Pod. And of course, give me a damn five star rating on Apple and Spotify. Thank you. When I wake up in the morning, love, and the sunlight hurts my eye, something without warning, love, best giving you my mind. So let's just do a little recap first of steps one, two, and three. I have done episodes on all of them, so you can find them if you want to check out the back catalog. Uh, But briefly, let's recap. So step one, we admitted we were powerless over the effects of alcoholism or other family dysfunction and that our lives had become unmanageable, aka my childhood screwed me up. It is negatively impacting my life as an adult, and I cannot fix this shit. I cannot heal from that negative impact on my own. Step two, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity, aka change is possible. And as I said in the step two episode, what this step is not saying is that we came to believe that praying twice a day or going to church every Sunday would restore us to sanity. It is saying that, A, we are worthy of a happy and healthy life. We are worthy of not um, being imprisoned by the faulty childhood programming. And B, that by seeking the help we so desperately need, that we can heal and have that happy and healthy life. And this help comes in many forms. It does come in the form of a higher power or God, a universe of nature, It comes in the form of therapy. It comes in the form of 12-step programs and other healing communities. This podcast is an example of help. All of these serve as a vessel for which healing can occur. So now for step three. Made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understand God. AKA, we made a decision to start taking action rooted in this belief that healing is possible. So now we proceed to step four, where we are taking that damn action, made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. Now, before we get into uh, the nitty gritty of this step from an ACA perspective, I want to talk a little bit about the process of doing a step four um, in AA or NA, because I actually just found uh, the very first 
fourth step I ever did, I was 19 and probably about six months sober. And actually, no, that's not that is not the very first four step I did. I guess it's the first four step I did for real. I can't remember if I've shared this. I think I may have in um in my fourth episode where I talk about my alcoholism. But the first, fourth, and fifth step that I actually did. So the fifth step is where you share your fourth step, your inventory with your sponsor. But so the first time I did a fourth and fifth step, this was the period of time where uh, I was not sober, where I was pretending to be sober and still going to meetings and doing step work with my sponsor and and picking up, you know, sobriety chips. And I remember being at my sponsor's house and doing my fifth step. And at the end, her asking me if there was anything that I had had left off. And I said no, but in my head, at the same time, I was thinking, yes, the fact that I'm like literally on pills and fucked up (laughs) uh, right this very second. Uh, So the fourth step from an AA or NA perspective um, includes three separate inventories, resentments, fears, and sexual misconduct. And so the purpose of this step is to identify our resentments, our fears, our sexual m- misconduct, to see the part that we played in all of that shit, and to identify the character defects that have been a pattern through our life. And so what happens is, you know, you go through these resentments, you go through these fears, and what seems to be the case is that there seems to be some common common character defects that that come up. And so the hope is <laughs> that by working the remaining steps and asking our higher power to remove these de- defects, we will, you know, let go of these resentments and fears that we've been harboring and that we will behave differently. The hope is that we will we will course correct and that we won't behave in the ways that we once did, or if so, at a much milder degree. So basically, meaning we learn our lesson. You know, I remember after doing my fourth and fifth step and working the remaining steps, thinking, you know, I am good to go. That everything and anything that needed to be resolved from my past was resolved, and that I had course corrected. And honestly, in many ways, you know, that was true. Basically, all areas of my life did improve, except for one big area that we all know, my romantic relationships. I was not able to course correct. I wasn't learning my lesson. The same shit kept coming up in inventory after inventory after each relationship And I couldn't figure out what the fuck was wrong with me. And as I've said before, you know, simply learning we have cancer doesn't make the cancer go away. Simply learning that I was an adult child didn't produce any sort of change. And the identification of these character defects on these inventories weren't enough to course correct my behavior in romantic relationships. And that is because what was not identified was the root of these character defects. And that, in fact, these weren't actually character defects, but survival mechanisms that had been ingrained in me as a child. And that these character defects were actually trauma responses. But, you know, at that time when I did my very first fourth and fifth step, I didn't have enough data points to know that I was severely impacted by my childhood or that I had complex trauma. You know, I had to get physically sober to allow this shit to come to the surface for me. I had to get physically sober and I had to date some some real gems in order for this drama and the detrimental impact of my childhood to come to the surface. You know, I had kept all of that shit at bay. I had kept all that stuff from festering and coming to the surface by checking out with drugs and alcohol and the inability to self-medicate in the ways that I once did 
resulted in the optimal conditions for this drama, for this shit to come to the surface. So I was looking at this, you know, this original fourth step that I did as it relates to my resentments towards my parents. Um, So let's see here. With my mom, I wrote... Well, okay. Here's what I said for my dad. It says, uh, my dad... Uh, so I'm resentful at my dad, the cause for leaving me with an alcoholic mother, for being emotionally unavailable, for yelling at me over small things. And then for my mom, it says, I'm resentful at her for being an alcoholic mother, for embarrassing me, for driving me around drunk, for not being uh, there for me at time, for punishing me for my drinking and using when there was no reprimand for her. So the fourth column of a, of a fourth step in, um, in AANA is to look at, you know, what our partisan things like what it says, what is the exact nature of our wrongs? And generally speaking, we do have a part in everything, but we don't necessarily have a, a part that uh, we play in this childhood stuff, right? So there are not any character defects that I identified related to these resentments with my mom and my dad. So essentially what we did here, right, was, okay, I'm resentful at my mom and my dad for these reasons. But that <laughs> that doesn't really do shit for me, right? Because we're not looking at what, what was the impact? What was the true impact? What were the faulty beliefs about myself that resulted from these this cause the the resentments that i had towards my parents the way that my parents treated me what was the true impact of that the faulty beliefs and fears and faulty programming that resulted from this experience from my childhood but like i said at this point in time when i wrote this i did not have the data points to know um truly how much it had impacted me but i guess that's actually not completely true though because if i look at the other shit that's on here the other kind of resentments and the fears i mean honestly and the character defects of these other things you know these actually were all a result of um of the faulty beliefs and like about myself and fears that were ingrained in me during my childhood these were all uh, in reaction to that of these kind of faulty uh, survival mechanisms. Like truly, it, well, I guess it, it's not faulty. It was the way that I had to survive, you know, but all this other shit that was on here was truly just um, a result of of my childhood and what was ingrained in me and these laundry list traits and just ways that I literally figured out like a way to survive everything that I was experiencing at home. So it's interesting. I've been thinking about that. Is that just the case for everybody? Um, when we're doing this fourth step, when we're doing that fourth column and we're looking at these character defects, I guess they all are just survival mechanisms. And are they all rooted in childhood for everyone? And how come some people can, you know, do this, the fourth and fifth step and in course correct from that without having to do any of like the deeper childhood stuff? You know, I think about, you know, my friends, the girls that I got sober with who also I'm sure had trauma in their childhood but um, they did not, they didn't hit an ACA bottom in the way that I did, or they haven't at least yet. But I'm just one of those people where, and perhaps we all just do have in it, and it just comes up in varying degrees. And I just happen to be one of those people where confronting this other shit, like literally my life depended upon facing it. Um, it had, you know, impacted me in such a um, severe degree that my life depended upon upon facing that. But actually, Dr. Drew talked about that. When I had him on the podcast, he made a comment about that, how, you know, there's certain people that can just do, you know, the 12 steps and um, the th- that, that that suffices for them. Yeah, I'm sure that there's there's deeper levels that they can go, but then there's people like me and I'm sure many of you guys listening where that wasn't enough, right? <laughs> it was not enough. But what I want to say is that I truly view that as a gift and as a blessing, um, despite all pain that I experienced, it's been so worth it just to be able to do this deep inner work. And we all know it's worth it, right? Because you wouldn't be listening to my damn voice right now. But truly, 
It's all this shit, the pain, the crap, the way that it manifested that has allowed me to be forced to do the work and subsequently really get to know myself and and know who I am and see myself for who I am and just to see that all of that pain resulted in good and shaped me into who I am today and gave me a lot of really wonderful qualities. So if you're one of those people too, where the 12 steps by themselves were not enough, don't worry, you are in the cool kids club. Okay, so let's move on and let's get into this. Let's get into this step four. So I'm going to be going through the adult children. It's called the 12 Steps of Adult Children Steps Workbook. So it says, getting started on step four. In approaching step four, many adult children have said, why dredge up the past? What is done is done. I'm forgetting the past and moving forward. For these statements, ACA has an answer and a guarantee. Most people don't arrive at ACA's door by mistake. You are here for a reason. So keep an open mind. Our experience tells us that our past can be our greatest asset if we are willing to ask for help and do the work to find out what happened. Simply recounting the past is not always enough to bring about healing and self-forgiveness. Without knowing the meaning of the abandonment encoded within the past, the adult child is doomed to repeat it. I'm going to say that again because this is huge. Simply recounting the past is not always enough to bring about healing and self-forgiveness. Without knowing the meaning of the abandonment encoded within the past, the adult child is doomed to repeat it. The unexamined past becomes the future of the next generation. If the steps do not bring relief or clarity to your life, we will refund your old way of life in full. This is the ACA guaranteed. Um, if anyone out there, anyone listening that has, <laughs> that has taken advantage of this, of this refund, let me know if that's true. Let me know if they actually will refund uh, your shitty ass life. <laughs> Um, So what is different about this step, this four step compared to um, a four step in AA and NA is that we're not just solely looking at our behaviors or our resentments. We're also looking at the behavior of our caregivers, of our parents and how this has impacted us. But the, the real emphasis is that we are doing this blamelessly. And this is something that we've talked about a lot, about how in order for us to heal, we have to talk about that stuff. We have to understand the causes and conditions that made us the way that we are. But we're not doing this rooted in in blame. We're doing this rooted in, I'm trying to save my fucking life. <laughs> so I'm going to read... Um, what it, a little bit it talks about this in the in the step book it says the key word to remember in eight in working aca's four step is blameless aca founder tony a believed that adult children should take a searching and blameless inventory of our parents because in essence we had become them tony believed that we internalized our parents we had become them in thinking and action even if we took steps to be different While we focus primarily on ourselves in step four, we have added an inventory of the family to the process. ACA believes that we cannot take a searching and fearless inventory if we leave out our family. Blame is not the purpose of step four or any of ACA's 12 steps. However, we can hold our parents and family accountable for their action and inaction. Blameless and accountability are the guideposts that steer us toward a balanced but searching inventory. And I think this next part is is really interesting. So what does it mean to like hold our family accountable? It says, we hold our family accountable by naming what happened to us without fear of being ridiculed or disbelieved. In step four, we name the threats, the hitting, the inappropriate touching, or whatever else might have happened to us. We avoid blame because we are aware of the generational nature of family dysfunction. Our parents passed on the seeds of shame and fear given to them. They were once children without a choice. They survived as we survived. While some parents were obviously sadistic or unrepentant, others did the best they could. These parents made a conscious decision to raise their children differently than they were raised. 
Many of these parents abstained from alcohol, yet passed on problematic fear and shame just the same. Um, And it also says avoiding blame does not mean that we avoid being angry or disgusted. Many of us feel rage when we talk about the abuse and neglect in our homes. These are normal feelings for the abusive and unhealthy parenting we lived through. We also avoid sinking into a victim mindset. This mindset can disqualify us from the emotional and spiritual gifts of ACA. We move out of the victim role and claim our personal power by taking this step. All right, so now let's talk about these various exercises within this workbook. So there are 12 separate exercises. I'm not going to go through every one in immense detail, but I do want to touch upon the key areas. And the way I want to split this up is I want to first talk about what we're looking at as far as our past, so the inventories of our childhood experiences and then we will talk about the um, the inventories that relate to our behavior as adults. So the first area that we're looking at um, from our childhood is the the laundry list worksheet. So this is where we are looking for events, incidences that contributed to us developing these laundry list traits. So we we look at the the 14 traits and see what is applicable for us. And then we do a little bit of investigating to see what are some incidences that contributed to us feeling this way. So for me, for example, one of the laundry list traits that I relate to is uh, we become addicted to excitement. And the incidences and events that contributed that to that for me were sitting on the steps listening to my parents fight, you know, getting an adrenaline rush from that, helping my dad search the house for my mom's booze, you know, going into the liquor cabinet with my dad at the age of eight and using a fucking paint stick to measure and monitor each bottle in the liquor cabinet. And, you know, for me in all of those instances, the way that my fear came through, I mean, obviously I was in fear but for me, it was it was an adrenaline rush. Like I got high. And I mean, I remember there were even times when I would get a sense that something was going to happen, that there was going to be like an incident later in the day. And if something didn't happen, but I would say like 95% of the time, my sixth sense was accurate. But the 5% of the time where maybe some big scene didn't occur, I actually would feel bummed out <laughs> about it. It's like, going to meet my dealer and then finding out that that he's all out. Uh, so then another trait for me, too, would be, you know, we have stuffed our feelings from our traumatic childhoods. And so for that, for me, and I think this is the experience of so many people, it would just be these huge fights, getting divorced, the world is over, and then waking up the next morning. And it's as if nothing ever happened. And that is so fucking confusing for a child. And we learn to not trust ourselves and trust our reality. And it also contributes to not learning how to to process emotions. We learn growing up that you go from zero to 10 and 10 to zero, as Tion Dayton says, with no speed bumps in between. So next, we are looking at denial. So there are two separate exercises related to denial. The first is a family secrets inventory. It says almost every dysfunctional family has a story or image that family members present to friends and outside world. But beneath the storyline is the reality of the dysfunctional home. There are secrets, inconsistencies, and wrongs that are contrary to the family image. Family denial supports the family image and denies the hidden story. So for my family, we were, you know, this nice looking family from the outside. We went to church every Sunday. We belonged to the country club. We went on a lot of fun vacations. But behind closed doors, my mom was an alcoholic. My dad was a workaholic who traveled out of town all the time and knowingly left me at home with my mom when he knew that she was driving me around drunk. Unfortunately, the the family secrets rule did not apply to me uh, and my problems as a child and teenager. So then next, there is a denial inventory. So it says, 
Denial lives in the way we recall the abuse, neglect, or rejection we suffered as children. Denial is the mechanism which protects and helps plant the seed of family dysfunction in the next generation. So in this exercise, we're looking for specific instances or events uh, in which we were abused or neglected or traumatized that we were in denial about as far as how it impacted us. For me, (laughs) I was in denial about my whole fucking childhood. You know, I had no idea that I had endured trauma. I had no idea that I had endured abuse. I was under the assumption that because I was never hit, I was never sexually abused. I was never told I was a piece of shit. I never missed a meal. That truly, how bad could I have been impacted? Well, guess what? Pretty damn bad. And part of the reason I started this podcast is just for that very reason to reach y'all who are oblivious to truly how their childhood impacted them. So next we have an inventory on shame and an inventory on abandonment. And these are the real uh, high dollar items for us adult children. This is what we all so fortunately get to share, even though the specifics of our childhoods may vary. We all know shame and abandonment. And so it says the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous states that resentment is the number one offender. It destroys more alcoholics than anything else. In ACA, we believe shame claims the number one spot. We believe that shame is so potent that a few drops can create a lifetime of lost self. Shame was often on the scene before abandonment, which is perhaps the second most troublesome abuse we have faced as children of unhealthy parenting. To shame a child is to abandon the child. A parent can shame and abandon a child without ever leaving the room because a shamed child feels unlovable and alone at a deep level. Adult children not only feel shame at the molecular level, but we also carry inherent shame. We not only feel shame, we believe we are shame. Wow. Lucky us, man. <laughs> we sure we sure won the damn lottery. Um, so, yeah. So there's the shame inventory. It says, you know, in addition to sexual abuse and harsh cursings, shame can come from calm statements by parents about appearance, speech, dress, and mannerism. Some shame can be uttered in tones of sarcasm, overly critical judgments, and hurtful comments veiled as teasing or jokes. So now I am going to play for you a portion of the Patreon from last this past weekend where we talk about shame and abandonment And uh, right before the audio starts, we read essentially what I just read to you. So I feel like you guys know about all of my shame and abandonment shit. But the one thing that was really burned deep or that really comes to mind for me specifically was when I had the separation anxiety stuff and I was sleeping in my bed with my mom. My mom's alcoholism was nobody could ever know about it, right? Like I had to, it was just me and my dad and I had to take all that on and then Yeah, it was that moment of like going to school one morning and then having my one of my best friends like say in front of my whole class, I I hear you sleep in bed with your mom every night, you know, and my dad had had played tennis with this. They were like really close family friends of ours. We would travel with them. And my dad had had played tennis with CJ's dad over the weekend. And um, thankfully, it it only lasted like a few days of like the teasing before they moved on to somebody else. But I already was the girl that couldn't go to the sleepovers. Obviously, like at the time, I've been thinking about this too. I personally, on a conscious level, I never felt shame or that the, the thought, the thought that I'm inherently wrong or that there's something wrong with me that was never a conscious thought for me or less than, or not smart, or, you know, I was never like verbally abused. There were never really any straight shaming statements made by my parents. Um, It just came in like much more subtle ways. But like, yeah, it was that. It was that I'm the problem. I am the problem. Like Andrea is just doing this for no reason. There's something, it's just Andrea is the problem here. And let's not address or look at why, (laughs) why Andrea is sleeping in bed with her mom every night, you know? 
and then, you know, just like being, being sent to the therapist, but just, yeah, it's, I think for me, like a lot of my shame and abandonment comes from just being labeled the identified patient and the scapegoat. It really just carried with me my entire life. Like I said, the thought was never there, but my behavior showed it. My behavior reinforced that I felt shame, that I believed I was shame and I acted accordingly and thus perpetuated more shaming experiences and more opportunities to be rejected and abandoned like through my behavior so that's what really comes up for me floors open andrea with all of your um knowledge on this subject can a child feel abandoned by an alcoholic parent simply because the parent was drunk all the time. I mean, the parent may have been at home with you, but do you grow up feeling abandoned because you know that they're not really there? I didn't consciously, but yes, that I think that that's all part of it for me. Right. Is like, I didn't, all this stuff was so insidious for me, but like, absolute, no, I didn't like feel abandoned. But subconsciously that was ingrained in me. My mom was not emotionally, she was not, she abandoned me emotionally. She was not there. She was not available for me. But no, not on a, I didn't feel that on a conscious level, but absolutely on an unconscious level, it, I felt I experienced abandonment. Yeah, because I have all the symptoms that you're talking about, yet I didn't feel abandoned. I didn't either. Yeah. When it comes to physical abandonment, I can understand it. But when it comes to like emotional abandonment, I don't know if a, a kid would consciously have the thought that I'm being abandoned. I just don't think that we're able to comprehend that. I started to comprehend that around my teen years in which my parent, um, when I would stay with my parent, I would be left alone for long periods of time so they could be with their friends. And like, I realized like, this is not normal. And like, my parent is choosing their drinking buddies over my well-being. But that was probably around 14. I picked up on it even sooner. I apparently, like, because I had a father who was a dry drunk. And so he was in the home and he'd have dinner with us every night, but he was just not there at all. Like, we would have conversations at the dinner table. And then 15 minutes into it, he would, like, just jump in and, like, talk about something we had already talked about. It was clear he wasn't listening or, like, just we'd be deep in conversation and he'd just jump in and, like, override us. And I remember my mom saying something about the difference between me and my brother because my brother's not affected by any of this. Like, my dad would watch TV, watch football games. And my brother would like come up and just like sit next to him and quietly watch with him. And that looked like he was parenting because he was there. But I would like walk up and then come and like ask questions. And he'd be like, shh, quiet, go away. Or like, you know, like didn't want to engage in anything. And so I got like physically, you know, pushed away or ignored. And that I think is like a really strong image of that like emotional abandonment that she didn't pick up on before seeing it with my brother because he wasn't trying to engage. He would just go along with it quietly. And the presence, the physical presence was there, but I definitely picked it up. And I remember at some point, like being upset because he would travel a bunch and being upset that we had to take him to the airport. And my mom asked me why I was like, well, why is he so excited to leave us? Like, why should we be excited to send him off? just let him go. And that was probably like maybe around the age of six or eight. So I definitely like did pick up on a lot of that. Um, and kind of even at some point, remember having a conversation with her saying like, wouldn't it be great if he just didn't come back? Like, wouldn't that, and you know, like, wouldn't that just make it easier for us instead of having to, and so, yeah, definitely like, but I didn't know, you know, it was just like, seeing other people's parents interact with them better or like seeing other people's dads, like actually want to do stuff mm -hmm. with them. Mm -hmm. And I wasn't seeing that. So I definitely did pick up mm -hmm. a lot of that. And how do you feel that manifested in adulthood? It manifested in me being super independent, not expecting anyone to you know, do emotional work with me or be there. Like I'm super avoidant. 
Um, it's also manifested in I have challenges with authority. Like if I have a male boss and he tells me what to do, I'm like, fuck off, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, uh, no way, no how, like, I don't know how to interact with like, you know, authority in that way or having somebody actually be there and trying to take control. It's just, there was such a void there before. I was the kid that could never stay overnight at people's houses, which is what drew me to you when I heard you say that in a podcast. I'm like, oh my God, there's someone else. So I was known as that kid. And ironically, it was because I I thought I, uh, because I miss my mom so much, but my mom was emotionally uh, not there for me. My dad was the alcoholic. And to this day, my mom still tells the story of having to drive all the way out to the lake, which is like a 15 minute drive from our house to pick me up at midnight and take me home because I couldn't stay overnight at Rondi's house because I started to cry as soon as we went to bed. I'd start to cry and I miss my mom. And so that story gets told still around our dinner table, family functions, and it's just a joke. And no one has ever asked me why I couldn't stay overnight. There was never any inquiry into why I couldn't. She just came to pick me up and it was silent and I felt ashamed. And and it still kind of manifests today. I have a hard time leaving my house. I live alone. And my good friends know that um, I still have that in me. Like I I have a hard time leaving my house because I feel safe here. But I can do it. But it still gets triggered in me. Is it overnight or just like leaving during the day? Overnight. And I get wound up before I know that I have to go. I make plans to leave town to stay at my girlfriend's house. I'll get fucking worked up. And then when I get there, it's fine. I'm have a great time. Do you have any awareness of like what the underlying fear is? Uh, as a kid, it was uh, abandonment. I was the youngest of three girls. And I always felt outside of my family. Like I was the problem kind of problem kid. Now I, I don't know. Uh, I have to think about that. Yeah. I mean, obviously it's an irrational fear, but I'm curious what it is. Food for thought, Mayor. Can I share something that's coming up for me around that too, though? I, I hate that you got shamed for coming back for needing to come back. I'm so sorry that that happened mm-hmm. to you. But like, I could even see that as being formative that now that's like the anxiety as if I have mm-hmm. to come back. Like, what's going to come up? Like, what are they going to think? Well, and I really like the reading because it reminds me of complex PTSD because it's not just about like a big Mm -hmm. shame or a big abandonment, which we could have those too. It could also be about like not praising someone or, you know, offering encouragement. Or even like, yeah, like it's, that's a joke. Like, is it, is it funny to you, Mayor? Like, it's probably not funny to you. And it's like, it's a joke that keeps being retold. And it makes me think of, I mean, a couple things. Um, So I was playing, I'm an only child as well. And I do have a lot of cousins though. And we were playing in the pool and we were playing Simon Says. And they said, Simon says, raise your hands. And they're like, oh, Becky, because that was my nickname. Becky has hairy armpits. I ran out. I was, and I look, I'm now it's like, that is kind of funny. You know, I don't know, but I totally was so embarrassed. I ran into the shed and like closed the door. Um, And I think they even made fun of me again at our um, camping trip and were like throwing rocks. Um, the big thing I want to share though, is 
And I don't know if it's passed from my mother to my animals and or like when I'm in a romantic relationship. I don't know if I ever came home from spending the night. I do remember though, like probably wanting to come home and kind of like isolating, being uncomfortable. And I don't know why. I just know it's a discomfort from being away from my mother. And I live in the same town as my mother now. Um, But I did live in New York City. And I felt a lot of discomfort. And she ended up getting stage four cancer. And so I came home and I did want to be there with her. I also know a big part of it was because I did not want to be uncomfortable. I was super uncomfortable with, with being away from her. And I don't know if I still feel that way about her. I think it's more like, even when I go to Santa Cruz, it's like an hour away. I, I get anxious about leaving my dog. And like, I've been bringing him a lot more. I think COVID has kind of probably in, even intensified it. Um, I know though, like I would feel really uncomfortable going on trips, leaving my animals. I get that way too. Um, mm-hmm. Do you? Yeah. I, and I think maybe I think they're yeah. going to die. I think that might be a fear, especially now my cats are like, are, are not like they are 17 yeah. and 16. Same thing with Kiki. And they're my babies. Same thing with Kiki. What? Yeah. How old She's is probably Kiki? 17 as well. Yeah. Oh, even right then. And yeah. And I think just in reading that whole thing, reading that I was feeling so much like it was kind of, uh, I mean, it, I don't even know when it was written. It felt like it was written today though, because it was, I just wrote it this morning. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I know I've been, I've known about shame and I've known about abandonment and it just felt like, Oh wow. They get me like, they get me that like shame and abandonment are huge for me. It's funny. And I haven't thought about this one in a really, 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 really long time. But this whole reading brought it up today. There were several times in my young life, like little, you know, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, and even like even pre-pubescent and complaining about being my hot. And my dad was like, well, just take your shirt off. And I'm like, no, I'm a girl. I can't do that. Mm. And he would make me do it, you know, and the intense amount of shame that I felt, you know, going around as a little girl shirtless. I mean, just imagine mm. that and just. It, oh, it was awful, you know, and just that one. And then of course, you know, never being, per- I was never good enough. It was always, and I've shared about that between him and I, and then even my mom, you know, you do something, well, you could have done this or why don't you do this or whatever, you know, it was never anything good enough. Oh, and then I've had the abandoned every which way, but loose, you know, my dad was a workaholic. Like he had custody and, you know, this, that, or the other nanny, nanny, I say nanny, it was just whoever my dad was fucking that month, you know, was ever watching us. And my mom was living her own life. She left when I was one, uh, seven, my brother was one. So and she, my mom's my alcoholic. For those of you who don't know my story, my dad wasn't any, wasn't <laughs> perfect either. But, I mean, they were both pretty fucked up, but, um, so the abandonment was emotional and physical, right? So even when I moved in with my mom, because I had this great plan, my dad was getting married, my brother was going to be taken care of, and I could go and live my life with my mom. I was in between my sophomore and junior in high school, and I moved in with my mom. Little did I know that my mom was an alcoholic shit show. <laughs> um, so my life did not get any better if maybe even then maybe a little bit worse because I became my mom's drinking buddy and did cocaine and all that shit with my mom. So, you know, and I don't know, just all the different ways that the shame spirals and the abandonment. I mean, this is all just shit that I know is part of me and I know that I'm not responsible for it. Right. I'm responsible how I react to it now. Um, and I try to let a lot of that go. And some days it's easier than others. It's, it's work. It takes every day. Anyway, that's all I got. So I went through a lot of, um, 
physical abandonment where I was left to wait for my parents all the time for hours in places because they had to do things that they needed to do and I would just be waiting and waiting. And there's all this starting from five, six years old in public places where people would just look at me and I would just be waiting. And at the time when you mentioned earlier, if we recognize that as abandonment, I never thought that I was abandoned. I just felt so helpless and just like tortured. And I just didn't understand why I was in that scenario. And it's just so weird because now I see how it's affected me and I know why. I just don't know how to fix it. So it's like, I put the connection two and two on why my, how I'm reacting now to these things, but then I don't know how to react differently. So it's just, it's so crazy. And then there's so many things with shame because if I was trying to bring it up and how it was affecting me, no matter my age, they would just make me feel ashamed for even bringing that to their attention. And it's so strange because there was no, there's no drugs or alcohol, or I can't even make an excuse for why they would do that. But that's just to them, a child just deals with, you know, their second to what the parents need to do. And it's so, I, I don't, it's just so crazy that I can't get over it. <laughs> you know, I just, I'm, I beat myself up about it all the time because I'm still blaming myself. Well, I think that why did they do that? I mean, probably because of how they were raised. Yeah. They didn't yeah. know any better. Yeah. It's crazy yeah. though, to be able to pinpoint exact scenarios so many years ago and then see that your emotional response is exactly the same for something else. Yep. But that is yeah. the first step is fucking mm -hmm. awareness. And unfortunately, I think it just takes time before we can shift. This has been your whole life and this has been ingrained in you. So it's like, it's not something that's going to change once you have the awareness. This is trauma. It's like my fucking, I'm, I'm automatically responding in a way. You're lucky to be able to pinpoint where some of that is coming from. Because imagine how much more challenging it would be if you just had this stuff showing up and you're not even sure, you know, where it's stemming from. Then you can see like, all right, there is clear indication. Now I see what happened and now why it's continuing. There's a lot of power in that pretty much every single person out there like has that going on to an mm -hmm. extent and isn't able to pinpoint it mm -hmm. yeah that's where i've been but since i've been listening to you andrea and talking to you ladies i'm starting to actually be able to pinpoint why i feel abandoned my father was a workaholic my mother is an alcoholic but i thought she never was abusive mm -hmm. so why do i feel this way but every single night she left at 10 o'clock to go to my grandparents' house mm. to drink. And they live three blocks away, but I can still remember her leaving and how alone I felt. Even though my dad was home and my sister, but it was an abandonment. And like I was saying earlier, Andrea, the fact that she was drunk all the time, even though she was there, she wasn't really there. So that's abandonment as well. So I'm, I'm learning, you know, I'm starting to pinpoint as to why I have all the ACA characteristics without knowing how I got there. So this podcast and this group is just, it's been so informational and I really appreciate it. I appreciate all you guys who are sharing and thank you. I think too, being here and starting to recognize it, you're right. This is a big, huge turn. I mean, I look at my mom. My mom is 70, I don't know, mid 70s. And she's an ACA. She's never going to go through the healing. She's never, I mean, I don't know if she's drinking now, but my mom 
you know, an alcoholic, whether she's active or not, I don't know. Not my business, but I know my mom's an ACA and I know she's never going to find the healing. And I know, I see, I recognize so much in my mom that I know that she is in the throes of her ACA and I know why she's going to react and she's never going to find. I know that. I know she's never going to find the peace or the understanding. I mean, my mom's thing is like, I went through a bunch of shit and I got over that years ago, which I clearly she hasn't. But, you know, so I think this is definitely a first step for healing. And I, you know, I don't feel like it's perfect for me, not at, at all. But I will tell you this, I do feel better every day. And every month, I feel better and better about myself. So it it just it takes time. Like you said, Andrea, you know, I'm 50, almost 56 years of bullshit. I can't get over it in five years. You know? <laughs> so. Listen to all that damn healing we got going on in these groups, guys. Go damn the join Patreon, as I like to say, or go join the damn Patreon. Um, okay, so then the only remaining inventory in here related to childhood is a uh, a sexual abuse um, inventory. So now let's move along to the areas of our own behavior that we are going to dissect. And so there are two separate inventories that look at how we have harmed others, the first of which being a generational transfer inventory, basically looking for how we have harmed people, specifically our children, in the same ways that we were harmed by our parents as a child. Then there is one that's denial of our own behavior. So ways in which we have harmed other people that we have been in denial about. So then there is the uh, trauma and neglect inventory. It says, for the PTSD worksheet, begin by writing down any traumatic or neglectful act you can recall. Was there hitting, cursing, threats, or talk of threat in your home? Were you injured? Write down the area of your body that was injured. These places can hold PTSD triggers. There are also elements of PTSD not caused by overt trauma. For example, a child growing up in a home with perfectionism and unrealistic expectations can feel anxious turning in a project at work. This is a form of PTSD caused by being undercut by a parent who usually found fault in our housework or schoolwork, even when it was above average. So we're looking at the traumatic or neglectful events we had as children and how this is gets triggered in adulthood in the mind and in the body. And that might be hard for some of us to do, to start from the event uh, from our childhood. But the other way to do it is do the reverse, looking at the times in our life when we are getting triggered, when we are having trauma responses, and then working back to figure out where that is rooted. When is the first time that we remember feeling this way? So for me, it was with the separation anxiety stuff. So that was my aha moment when I realized after Brian number one, the pain uh, that I was feeling in that moment was the exact same pain that I felt as a little girl who had to sleep in her mother's bed. Now, here's the deal. There are some limitations when it comes to the 12 steps. The 12 steps were not designed to be a healing modality for trauma. Maybe that is enough for some people, but for others, we have to get outside help. We have to get trauma therapy. So I've been reading this book called Trauma and the 12 Steps, and it is written by a woman who is sober and she's a proponent of the 12 Steps, but she also sees the limitations as it relates to trauma and that chronic relapsers are actually just people with unprocessed trauma. So, you know, in the big book, when it says those do not recover are people who cannot or will not completely give themselves to this simple program, usually men and women who are constitutionally incapable of being honest with themselves. There are such unfortunates. They are not at fault. They seem to have been born that way. They are naturally incapable of grasping and developing a manner of living which demands rigorous honesty. No, how about we have complex drama? 
Uh, But so in this book, she says another reason trauma remains unprocessed is people tend to automatically assume that talking is the only way a person can process. In many treatment centers, talking is synonymous with processing. Although talking can help a person to process, talking is primarily a function of the neocortical brain. A person can talk about the trauma all they want, but until they can address it at the limbic level, the trauma will likely stay stuck and impact one's quality of life. And then the final piece is praise work. So positive affirmations, coming up with at least 10 positive affirmations for ourselves. So for me, I would say I'm strong, I'm humorous, I'm intelligent, I am compassionate, I'm talented, I'm spontaneous, I am creative, I am loving, I am a fucking badass. Just one look at you, and I know it's gonna be a lovely Well, that wraps up today's episode. I hope you heard something that you can relate to, and you are welcome, and thanks again Andrea, that was that was fabulous, Andrea. Way to go. Check in the show notes for all of, of Andrea's shit. Go damn the join Patreon, y'all. So next week, I'm really, really, really pumped, y'all. So I'm going to be talking to this girl that was my friend at that boarding school that I went to um, in the 10th grade, the character building therapeutic boarding school. Uh, but yeah, I don't think I have talked to her in 18 years, 15 years. She liked something on my Facebook about the um, the podcast. Uh, and so I, I reached out. And this story is going to be really fucking juicy. I think we're going to have sex trafficking. We're going to have escorting. We're going to have heroin. It's going to be super It's going to be super vulnerable. And I'm so excited for y'all to hear it. It's going to be a goodie. I promise. 